You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights Booksellers and Publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual extension of the City Lights events calendar. I would like to take this moment at the outset to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. I'd like to take this moment to offer our respects to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Tonight, investigative journalist Justine Barron discusses her new book, They Killed Freddie Gray, The Anatomy of a Police Brutality Cover-Up, published by Arcade Books. She is joined in conversation with Rabia Chaudhry, Alex Vitale, Sierra Warren. The talk will be moderated by Kim Brown, the host of the real news show Stir Crazy, and her own show. Uh, they Killed Freddie Gray explores a conspiracy amongst Baltimore leaders to cover up what actually happened to Freddie Gray, who was fatally injured in police custody in April of 2015. This event was to spark the Black Lives Matter movement and racial justice protests that exploded across the country. Based on new evidence and deep reporting, the mystery of how Freddie Gray was killed and the cause of his death and cover-up is brought to light. In coordination with a documentary film now being produced, the book revisits this pivotal moment in U.S. criminal justice history and provides us with new insights exploring the historical structures and dynamics of power that allowed the murder to happen. This narrative has never appeared in the mainstream media, and Justine Barron has produced a meticulously researched and engrossing read, which promises to really become the definitive book on the case. Justine Barron is an investigative journalist whose work focuses on crime, corruption, and media criticism, with a special emphasis on the city of Baltimore. She is also an acclaimed storyteller and four-time winner of the Moth Storytelling Competition. Her work has appeared in Appeal, Rolling Stone, Fairness and Accuracy, amongst other media outlets. Joining her in conversation is Rabia Chowdhury. Rabia Chowdhury is an attorney, advocate, and author of the New York Times bestselling Adrian's, or I'm sorry, Adnan's Story. Also joining her tonight is Alex S. Vitali, who is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. And also on the panel will be Saria Warren, a mother, activist, podcaster, and comedian. She witnessed the crucial moment in Freddie Gray's fatal encounter with the Baltimore City Police. Tonight's event will be moderated by Kim Brown, host and editor of Burn It Down with Kim Brown, formerly the host of real news show Stir Crazy, and she has been covering national and international politics and issues on race and culture for over 10 years. Please join us now in offering a warm welcome to our guests. To get the evening started, we'll be joined now by Kim Brown. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much, Peter, for that wonderful introduction, and thank you so much to City Lights for hosting this dynamic discussion about Justine's new book and obviously the revealed evidence um, that her diligent journalistic uh, reporting has uh, brought to bear for all of us to read in this uh, book, They Killed Freddie Gray, uh, an, an autopsy, or pardon me, um, talking about what actually went into the cover-up 
um, surrounding Freddie Gray's murder. So thank you all so much for being here. We appreciate you, you being here. And Justine, you know, one of the things that your book, which it's really good, by the way, if I haven't told you that already, uh, it, it is a very dynamic, deeply technical, but at the same time, very personable read because you brought us a perspective, I think, from the folks of Sandtown, Winchester, a neighborhood in West Baltimore, that not only the national media took deliberate steps to ignore um, and minimize the voices of the people from that community, especially those that knew Freddie personally, like Sierra, which I'm so glad Sierra is joining us. Um, but I, I, and that's where I really wanted to begin, because even though we're going to get into the the evidence that your book d divulges um, surrounding not only the investigation into Freddie Gray's murder, his homicide, um, but the the subsequent trials of the police officers that were all non-successful. But one part about the entire story that stayed missing from a lot of the mainstream coverage at the time was about Freddie himself. And even in reading the book, I found myself being corrected by some of your information because there was so much misinformation about him, about his home life, about his disability, and about his, quote, criminal record. Um, so uh, if you could talk to us about what it was like for you to peel away from a lot of what was being reported about Freddie and why it was important to actually speak to the people that knew him personally, knew him around the neighborhood, knew his character, knew what kind of person he was um, and, 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 what, and what part that played in this book. Um, yeah, I think... Um... A lot of the local and national media misunderstood why there was an uprising. Um, you know, there was the timing of the, and it has to do with who Freddie Gray was, and Sierra can speak to this too. You know, the timing of it with the cell phone footage of his arrest and Black Lives Matter being in the news made it seem like this was one case out of the thousand or so people that are killed by police a year that, you know, rose to the surface kind of organically. But in fact, Freddie was really popular and beloved in his community. And the first protests were his friends and neighbors marching down to the police station down the street and yelling at the cops through the walls of the police station. And that's how the movement started. And it was because he was known in the community as a very popular, gregarious, hilarious, generous person, a real son of the elders, an uncle figure to the kids, a brother and a sister. He was like family in that community. Um, what happened with the media is that there were sort of two um, media stories about him. And both of them were based on the easiest information out there, which is Google searching his, his um, court records. So one story was based on his criminal records, which was this, they called it a rap sheet of arrests. But until recently, in Baltimore, they would show every arrest. It didn't matter if the case was dropped. And in half of the cases that were pursued for him, they were dropped. And if you read the probable cause statement, there was very little going on in almost all of his arrests, only once ever an exchange of drugs for money. And it was known that he sold drugs, but he was a, there was no gun ever on him, no knife ever on him, you know? So 
there was that narrative, which was pushed by like Fox News and conservative news sites that he was this hardened criminal, you know, which was so far from what he was. And then on the other side, you had the story of him being poor and disabled by lead paint poisoning that the liberal media picked up. And, you know, as I started to unravel it, you know, I'm a disabled person myself. So I was really taking this narrative personally. It was it became obvious to me that that narrative was just as harmful and dehumanizing because his disability was not well understood. He had ADHD and that was documented, but he became what I write about as like the poster child for lead paint poisoning. And a lot of stories described him as if he were like, you know, extremely cognitively slow, you know, physically disabled and, and, and he just wasn't. He could have been, and that would be a story too, but he wasn't. And it was it was a way that the liberal media used to take the focus off the cops killing him because the narrative was like, there were some people who even said he was doomed from being so poor and having lead paint poisoning, or he was a lost cause or inevitably going to, that he was inevitably going to get killed in this way. And he wasn't even committing a crime when he was arrested. So there's just nothing inevitable about it. So, you know, that speaks to some of it. And then, you know, Syria certainly knew him personally. Absolutely, Syria. I wanted to kick that to you, but I wanted to highlight just in what you said there, because at the end of the day, it was not lead paint poisoning that killed Freddie Gray. It wasn't dealing drugs that killed Freddie Gray. It was the police that killed Freddie Gray. So thank you for, for saying that. And Syria, you were the only person here that knew Freddie personally, when you saw, well, first, our, our condolences to you still, because you lost a friend, you lost a neighbor in, in a very violent way. And, and I'm certain that that still reverberates not only with you, but with the whole community, really with the whole city. But talking about um, how you knew him personally and how that contrasted to the way that he was portrayed in the media, can, can you speak to us about that? I feel like the media is like, like Donald Trump used to say, like fake news. It's like they put this narrative out there to take you away from what's really going on, like Justine said. As far as that man having led, that had nothing to do with what was going on with him. That did not make him slow. That did not make him different from anybody else. I know a lot of people that had, you know, lead poisoning and it didn't disrupt like their cognitive, you know, like their brain cells or whatever. So I feel like it's always a race thing too. I feel like when it comes to black people, especially in, in that environment where we live, <clears throat> it's always a stereotype. It's always a hot area for the police. It's always drugs, which is true though, because it's like, it's poverty and it's crime. And, and these men have to do what they what they know best to take care of their families. So like we knew that he sold drugs, that's not a secret, but this particular day he was not selling drugs. And this particular day, it was just, it was just a lot going on. Like I said, I did see um, the police and what they did to him at the second stop, which was not broadcast to the media. They, they lost this footage of this video camera that you know and a lot of people came to me and asked me about freddie 
to see like if my story would change, I think. And it didn't. So it was like I was summoned to court eight times. I never went. And once I started putting the pieces together and start realizing that it was just like a whole setup at the end, it was just crazy how they can do this. You know, the authority that these people have, cops, judges, lawyers, whatever, whoever was involved, states, attorneys. Everybody was kind of just like working together. I just feel like they don't care about our people. Like, I feel like they try to paint us in the worst possible light to, I guess, make it seem what they're doing to us is right. And as far as Freddie, like I said, he helped a lot of people around him. He made a lot of people laugh. He was a brother. You know, he was my friend. Like, I really... Am still heard about that because again, it's like y'all painting this picture like he deserved this and he really didn't. So, yeah. Robbie, when you know, in part of Justine's title for the book, you know, the anatomy of a police brutality cover up, the smearing of the victim is usually step one or step two. The step one may lie in somewhere in the, the officer may have failed for, for their life. In, in, in some variation of that, but the inevitable smearing of the victim, the trotting out of their criminal record, if any, the, the, the questioning of their disability or able-bodied status or mental health challenges. Like these are things that the media usually seizes upon, but they get this information either, like Justine said, via Google searches, uh, searches or they're, they're given this information directly by the police who have a specific agenda to set the tone of why this murder, this police-involved murder was was justified. Yeah, you know, I think um, it's it, it's pretty shocking to the conscience when you look at, like, the coverage of a lot of high-profile cases. You know, I mean, I've, I, I work mostly in innocence cases, and um, when you look at the um, concurrent coverage of of any case, you know, whether it's during the arrest or uh, of a defendant, I mean, or during the trial or prosecution, who, who, what, the only agencies that are using, like, you know, they're, they're making press statements, they're having press conferences, it's always the state, it's always the police, it's always the prosecutors, it's right, it's always state agencies, you never hear any, and in a, a situation like this, who is going to be who is going to be telling the narrative uh, narrative of you know actually what happened on the ground or who Freddie Gray was other than people who knew him but people who are being ignored people who are whose statements were not being narrated i am just shocked over and over at how uncritical um a lot of reporting is there and i realize there's a big difference between like, like basic news reporting which it, i'm highly skeptical of now I, honestly i am like if i, I and investigative journalism, you know what I mean? There, there's no investigative piece being done in any of this. And, you know, earlier um, you had a slip of the tongue, Kim, and you said um, autopsy. And I do think this book is kind of an autopsy as well. Um, it's not just the anatomy. It's an autopsy of um, how how this cover-up took place. And um, the media is really complicit in in her, in kind of convicting people publicly before they get a fair chance at getting justice, whether it's in the courts, whether it's in um, a police confrontation or, or otherwise. Yeah. And Alex, I mean, that's, that's, that's strategic largely. 
um, because the police understand that if if a if one of theirs is going to be held to account in the legal system for taking the life of of a resident, um, that they're going to have to start putting out their story early and often because you, you could be speaking to a potential jury pool or most importantly, the, the court of public opinion, which still overwhelmingly does have a favorable opinion um, uh, about the police in spite of our efforts. <laughs> but, you know, uh, a lot of people still do have a lot of trust in the police and are more than willing to at least initially accept the police line when it when it first comes out. I'm talking about the majority of people, not people that are that are dialed in to the issues of uh, police brutality and police murder, but the average person um, who, who still likely will say that we need more police in our communities if they live in a high crime area um, are, are more inclined, I think, to, to accept the word of the police. And that's why this strategy of trying to malign and, and, and smear the victim is, is so critical in those opening hours and days. Can I say something? Well, um, yeah, please. I feel like when it comes to like people in our community and the police, it's like we're very voiceful, right? Like when they do things and, you know, like how you say, like a lot of people do trust them and we don't. So it's like when something happens in our community, which is the high crime community or whatever, you know, the police paint us out to be, they paint this narrative, like how you said, they start off early with the stories to put this image into people's mind because they always judging anyway. So they put these thoughts out like, yeah, well, I like they stereotype as well. I kind of figured that because they live here or because of their skin complexion or you know what I mean? And it's just, it's just crazy because we're the ones that's going to really be honest about what's really going on. And I feel like that's why they try to paint this picture of us because they, of course they don't want the real out, out there in the, in the air. Like this is not nothing new. I mean, far as police killing Black people. This is not nothing new, you know, but I just feel like it's not going to stop. Like I said at uh, Justine's book opening, it's not going to stop because it's a dog eat dog game. It's like people in our communities are poor, right? So it's like poor people to them, we commit crimes, we're stealing, we're, we're this, we're that. And when they kill people and then families take the money and then it's like hush money. So you can't really keep trying to change, make change because it's like, once you took the change, you can't make no change. You know what I mean? So it's like a dog eat dog world when it comes to the hood, because people are broke. And once they start writing them checks with those zeros that people never seen before, it's kind of like, what do I do? I need this money, but I do want justice. You get what I'm saying? So now they in between like, and often than most, of course they take the money because they broke, but that's not that to the police is like, yeah, that's all we had to do. So if we kill somebody else, that's all we got to do, you know? And that's been the, that's been the cycle. Like it's no money worth my family members. So like, I don't know.
I'm not, I'm not sure, but I just feel like it's always a cycle of this bull crap that be going on in our communities because of the stereotypes, like I said, because of the poverty. It's, it's like, until we stand on really wanting justice, we're not going to get it. Like, we're just not, so... You know, Saria pointed out, you know, one of the many tools that cities and police departments use to try to neutralize dissent. So I'm so glad you pointed that out. Uh, and there's abundant evidence that shows that these settlements and and that that individuals and families win don't do anything to make policing better. But what it does do is it silences people. In addition, police departments are designed to try to constantly shine up their image because they know they have a problem. So in many cities, for instance, there are more public relations people in the police department than there are in City Hall. Right. These these police departments that claim poverty sometimes have dozens of people being paid high police salaries whose job is just to burnish the police department's image so that they can respond 24-7 when something happens to make it look like the police weren't at fault. To the, you know, Who is looking up those criminal records at three in the morning to give the reporters the line that he had it coming? This massive police PR staff that exists to do damage control. And frankly, most internal affairs divisions function in the same way. They say they're here to investigate the police, but really what their job is, is to protect the image of police, is to get to the bottom of things and then to try to push it out of view, explain it away, make excuses for it, or in the worst case scenarios, like what happened in Minneapolis, to choose an individual officer and throw them under the bus in order to protect the reputation of the larger department. Mm -hmm. You know, the conflation between Freddie Gray's past criminal record, of which Justine accurately pointed out that he had a number of charges dropped, he was never convicted of uh, most of the things that he was arrested for, the conflation of, of his quote, record with the reason why police even engaged him that morning back in uh, April 2015 in the first place was something that I, as I was reading the book, I realized that I, that I had lost because I could not recall what was the reason that police even chased and arrested him in the first place. But simply looking in the police's direction was enough for them to engage with him in such a way that he felt that he had to run. And I feel as though oftentimes, mostly black folks, especially when they run from police or if they give say a false name to police, like these are behaviors that are viewed by I suppose the mainstream or maybe you know cer certain class of folks or even a certain race of class of folks. They, they view this as suspicious behavior. Well, if you weren't doing anything wrong, then why did you run? Why did you give the police, you know, your your incorrect name? Well, people do these things as a means of protection because they understand that the wrong engagement, the wrong encounter with police can cost them their life. So they will take their chances and run. And Justine, I appreciate again in the book that you pointing out to us and, and getting very technical with the charge that 
I can't even call it a charge. They were trying to put a possession of a switchblade knife on Freddie Gray, but that wasn't even even the case. Can can you talk to us about this real attempt to fabricate and come up with something plausible that that could be justified, I suppose, to the greater public as to why police chased this young man in the first place? What crime did he allegedly commit that even um, spurred this chase? And and of course, the brutality that that he endured consequently. Sure. So I want to first start with the eye contact story. So um, it took the police a while for all of their story to come together. But eventually they said Freddie was chased because he made eye contact with an officer and ran in a high crime area. So they were putting that out there really early because there is a Supreme Court decision called Wardlow versus Illinois. Um, the criminal justice experts on the panel can speak to it also. But it it was a sort of a Fourth Amendment, like it kind of poked a hole in the Fourth Amendment by saying, well, they can definitely chase and detain you if you run from them in a high crime area, you know? And actually one of Freddie's friends, one of the, the only ones who got to testify, Brandon Ross on the stand said, um, he was asked, you know, is there a lot of crime in your neighborhood and he said like where is there not crime in baltimore but um so it's kind of a dubious distinction but um so originally though police were trying to put out there that he might have been committing a crime and the deputy was even saying um deputy commissioner was even saying well the police thought they saw him do something that warranted him being chased but none of the officers said that and that never happened what they did is they withheld footage of what was really happening, which was that Freddie and his friends were taking a long walk that morning. And when they got to a corner, they got chased like that. And so even the eye contact part, I don't know, did that happen? I don't know. Did he make eye contact? I mean, that is that was used to say, well, we know that he was running from that officer because he made eye contact with that officer. Considering that almost every other part of their story is a lie, I don't know if there was really any eye contact happening. You know, the guy was on a bike with a big helmet. So, uh, yeah, so they chased him down to um, Gilmore Homes, a couple of blocks, uh, caught him. And they. Um, we were told a week after the arrest that he was arrested for knife possession. So if they knew that on day one, why didn't they say it? Well, because a week after the arrest, Freddie Gray died. So they waited until he was no longer alive to say, I wasn't carrying that knife. What the F are you talking about, right? Um, well, the, it's, it's a very, very complicated and technical story of how we know that he was probably not carrying a knife. It has to do with like, dispatch reports and evidence control submissions, but um, there's they suppressed video evidence of the officers while Freddie Gray was detained on the ground, like hunting around for something on the ground, nowhere near where he ran. So they didn't really have any arrest that day and they might not have even had eye contact for all I know. Robbie. I feel like, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sierra. I feel like they approached him because he had lawsuits. He won lawsuits against uh, police too. So like y'all know him and y'all don't like him because y'all done already tried to put charges on him that did not stick. That was also wrong, clearly, if it was a lawsuit that he won against the police department. Just to so clarify, clearly, 
I just want to clarify you for a minute. So it wasn't a lawsuit against the police. There was the settlement for the um, for the lead poisoning against the city. I just wanted to correct that. No, um, sorry, but continue. There, there was yeah, that. Sure. They definitely targeted him, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's like he's not a stranger to you know. None of us are to to be honest, because this high crime area that they keep talking about is where we live. You get what I'm saying? So regardless, we could be sitting, like I was arrested one time for sitting out on my front. I don't sell drugs. I'm not a gangbanger. I don't do anything. I was just sitting on my front, smoking. It probably wasn't legal then, but <laughs> definitely was smoking. But that same camera that put me and locked me up is the same camera that I know got that footage from that second stop that they hid. So I don't know. I just feel like we're not strangers to the police. We don't respect them because they never really helped us. Like I can't speak on all police because I have family that's police and I know that there are some stand up police officers out here. So I'm not saying that to all cops, you know, it's just those ones that I don't know. I don't know. And it, it and they be black too. So it's not like it's just the white officers that's, you know, targeting us. It's officers. Period. I feel like it's like a cult. It's like we're going to protect our own. Nobody, regardless of what's going on or what they did, can break that. And that's how I feel. I used to work as a 911 dispatcher for Baltimore County. Okay, I know how they get down all up in in the system and and their stereotypes and 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 it's a cult. It's like a whole cult. I'm no longer there anymore because I wasn't a part of the cult yet, so I had to go. You know, Robbie, I, I wanted to, to talk. I'm sorry if somebody wanted to jump in, but I wanted to just uh, just uh, you know piggybacking off you know, Justine's answer and Syria's answer is there as well. I mean. How many times do we hear defendants say that I, I wouldn't do a nothing? And, and, and usually it's, it's, it's not taken at face value. It's not taken as a literal statement. No, I wasn't doing nothing. I wasn't doing anything. I was standing here being black, minding my business, caught the eye, allegedly, maybe, of this cop. And he felt it enough that, that I, was, I was worthy of a chase for whatever reason or worthy of engagement or worthy of some, of some sort of contact or worthy of a pat down or worthy of, of um, asking me my ID, where I'm going, where I'm coming from. How many times do we see brutality cases begin with something as, as innocuous as, as someone literally just minding their business and just being oftentimes black and existing in a space? Yeah, I mean, look, this happens in, um, uh, I mean, basically what we're talking about racial profiling here, right? Like. When you talk about like the neighborhoods where there's the heaviest policing, when you talk about how the law is applied, when you talk about how discretion is used in deciding what is probable cause or not. I mean, um, in my experience after 9-11 was that if you looked Muslim, that's enough. That's probable cause, right, to get you uh, blocked from getting on a plane. Um, I mean, racial profiling is deeply embedded in our justice system. Um, and it is absolutely true that the the weight of authority here um, in front of a jury, I mean, what I've seen over and over again, has really historically always been with the state. When a prosecutor says it, I, I don't think jurors ever believe that a prosecutor could lie or that a, police would li a policeman would lie under 
oath, right? They just, they're like, this is, you know what I mean? People had a lot, have had a lot of faith. I think things have changed in the last 10, 12 years, thanks to social media, thanks to, a, thanks to Black Lives Matter, thanks to a growing awareness and, and skepticism um, about uh, police narratives, thanks to the exposure of lots of police agencies who have been caught red-handed, you know, planting evidence and, and, and uh, entrapping people. And uh, so I do think there's a growing skepticism um, in the American public, which I think is healthy um, and less, um, less trust in, but, but always the police and prosecutors have always had an upper hand in controlling the narrative um, in, I mean, well before a person even gets a fair trial. And of course, in a situation like this, we're not even talking about like that, but I mean, just, um, in a way, Freddie Gray was also tried because what happens is like the first step of damage control in any of these police brutality situations is to victimize the victim further by saying, by by giving the public reasons that the police is like, he kind of deserved it. He was a criminal. He had a knife on him, right? They've got to like, that's step one in damage control is tell the public why this person was a scary, dangerous person. The police had to do their job. Um, and they're all they're already defaming and slandering that person and trying him in the court of public opinion uh, before anything is actually known about what actually happened in, in the uh, interaction. I saw I saw some of that. I'm not sure if you guys saw the story coming out of the past 24 hours out of Shelby County, Tennessee, where the five Memphis police officers who have been charged in the murder of Tyree Nichols, the Shelby County District Attorney there dismissed uh, dozens of cases connected to these officers. And uh, on my show today on Burn It Down with Kim Brown, I featured a piece of local media, local TV station, and the anchor characterized it as some bad guys are about to be walking the streets free. And, and this is the media we're talking about. We're talking about people who themselves have not been tried or convicted of anything. And that is the framing um, that that defendants receive in this country. Alex, you know, talk, getting into making sure that the narrative fits the police agenda, the copaganda agenda, they, they have a lot of um, people helping them <laughs> uh, do that. Not only the, the police themselves, but the media is right there to lend uh, a, a helping hand in, in crafting a narrative that is most favorable to, to, towards the cops in this situation. Well, and usually the district attorney as well. And one of the big uh, interesting changes these last few years has been this rise of so-called progressive prosecutors. You know, some are more progressive than others, and some some have not come through. But uh, they have a new elected prosecutor in Shelby County, and he's doing what the voters wanted, which was to really raise serious questions about the reliability of the Memphis Police Department, which is incredibly ineffective, corrupt, and brutal. I've been I've been there twice already this year working with groups like Decarcerate Memphis down there. In terms of the media, they, they are not independent. They are not neutral. They are tightly embedded with the political status quo of these cities. Their business involves getting advertising from the same people who want the police to come and get those kids off the corners, get those homeless people away from their businesses, who want this kind of law and order narrative. So you've got elected officials 
the media and business elites all working together to craft this narrative that police are the solution to all our problems. When what police really are, are just a way of papering over the failure of those groups to provide any kind of economic security for whole swaths of these populations. The political leadership of Baltimore has no plan to reduce the poverty in Baltimore's neighborhoods. And they need policing from their point of view to hold the boot on those people through constant racial profiling, so-called proactive policing, like the gun trace task force and all this kind of corrupt, brutal stuff we see from police in Baltimore, another city I know quite well. And so the media have an interest in defending that approach. And, you know, another another interest of theirs is also access. I mean, they, they are deeply embedded because they need continued access just to even, you know what I mean, to, to print their, to have stories to publish, to keep their jobs. And they cannot uh, risk that access by being critical or investigative or challenging any of the narratives coming out of these agencies. And um, that's, oh, go ahead, Justine. Well, I just wanted to jump on something Alex was saying, um, which which would also, I feel like at this point, we, we should probably introduce some of this too. You know, what was unique about this case and confusing for a lot of people is that, yes, it was about, you know, Alex was talking about all these systems that protect the police and my book absolutely shows that. But on the surface, it looked like Mer State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby was taking on the police. And it looked like a serious radical challenge to the police, you know, in terms of her charging six officers and Freddie Gray's death. You know, what, so what happened there was also very media friendly because it created a binary and the media loves binaries, you know, red versus blue, Democrats versus Republicans, Mosby versus the cops, right? The problem is that she didn't actually take on the police because she based her case and her theory that Freddie Gray's death happened in the van and that he was thrown forward while the van was moving on what the officers said, the defendants. So the defendants, the people who killed Freddie Gray and helped cover it up, defined the narrative that then influenced the investigation, the prosecution, the media, the federal investigation, the public's understanding of what happened, City Hall, the lieutenant in particular, you know, the one who was the most responsible for his death and cover-up, wrote the story of Freddie Gray and what happened that day, and not the 20 or so witnesses who saw him brutalized at the first two stops and thrown headfirst into the wagon at the second stop, which is probably much more likely what killed him. So I just wanted to put all that out there. <laughs> and oh. I say something for Mosby. Um, I never really fell for it because it was like a lot of stuff going on in the Sanitown community around that time. And I feel like she was trying to neutralize the situation. Like I never believed her. Like, I mean, it sounded good. It made some people feel good. But to me, it was all the the shenanigans. Like it was just all a part of this. Because, like I said, it's a cult. Like I don't care if it's binary. If you fake beefing with them today, like y'all are together, all of you. 
So I never really, I didn't have hope that this would be, you know, that officers would be charged. Officers don't charge. Like, let's be real. Officers, they skate on by. And like you said, there's a lot of stuff that helped protect the police department but the police are supposed to protect us is that the only people protecting us like who's protecting us out here because clearly the police is not protecting us so like i don't know really who to who to trust and especially with this situation with freddie gray how everybody came acting like they wanted to help and like they cared but the whole time they were covering you know their butts the whole time so I never believe Mosby. Never. <clears throat> me either. About about trust, right? I mean, who who can residents of Baltimore City really trust? Can you trust the police? It doesn't appear. No. Can you trust the <laughs> to tell the truth about the police? Does not appear. And can you trust the prosecutors to hold the police accountable for for when they harm citizens and and commit acts of violence and brutality against residents? Absolutely. So so I can understand why residents have no trust. And, you know, this this idea of a progressive prosecutor, which I think Marilyn Mosby at the time, 2015, 2016, absolutely um, epitomized. I mean, but it's still a myth because a prosecutor, their whole job is to put people in jail. <laughs> like, that's, like, that's her job. But it did not appear as though it was her job to put these, pro to put these cops accused in the murder of Freddie Gray in jail. They, and they don't prosecute their own. That's they right. To us and it's crazy like now she now they against her now the cult is against her like so i i don't know what's going like i don't believe nothing i see on the news i don't believe nothing that the media say because it's like it's a smoke screen it's, it's always something there to distract you from what's really going on and if you're not really paying attention then you won't know that this is happening <laughs> so at the time especially right 2015 let's put the try to put it in context right because we're coming out for 2014 which is a horrific year uh for police murder particularly uh, of black men and children in 2014 tamir rice was murdered by police eric garner was strangled to death on the streets of new york city um you know we we, we saw a lot of course what happened in uh, ferguson with michael brown and uh the uprisings that that sparked in ferguson which would eventually lead to baltimore and for the for the baltimore police officers involved in freddie gray's death to at least be charged was such um, uh, a temporary like beacon of, of light, <laughs> uh, um, and and just to be met with with crashing crashing disappointments at the ineptitude and the incompetence of uh, what appeared to be uh, the state's attorney's office and a failure to secure any convictions, and then they didn't even get through all the trials. I mean, Rabia and, and Alex also. What, I mean, in y'all's opinion, was this was it was it all a show? Was it as Sierra said to 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 quell the uprisings to kind of toss a little bit of you know morsels to the people like hey you know we're, we're gonna we're gonna give y'all some justice here wink wink nod nod you know to the cops but you know don't don't worry don't anybody don't anybody actually be really concerned about any police going to jail we're just going to do this to to kind of shut people up in the streets that's what yeah, they do they do that I'm yeah, sorry. I, think there, I think there was definitely an incentive um at that moment to try and um placate people and you know um and and 
calm people as much as possible. I, I am a little bit um, conflicted about whether I believe that the, the charges were deliberately de deliberately designed in a way to make sure that there were they could not actually be proved in a court of law and therefore like nobody get convicted or whether it was a matter of sheer like um, incompetence uh, and just a lack of experience. Mosby did not come into this position as a prosecutor with a history of being a criminal prosecutor. Like that wasn't her background. And so I, I just don't, I'm not sure which it was. And I think both are equally likely. And um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that it could just have been a sheer incompetence. And um, because I actually think it would have served Mosby more pol pol better politically had she secured the convictions that would have secured because people, People were very skeptical, I think, locally, but she became a national hero. She became a national hero as a progressive prosecutor for bringing these charges, right? So that would have further secured, I think, her political career if she wanted it outside of Baltimore, if she was able to secure some conviction. So I'm like, did she? I, I don't, I can't imagine. It's hard for me to, to believe that she wanted to botch it on purpose. That doesn't mean, I mean, you know, the, 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 Trials were not prosecuted by Mosby, right? I mean, like, who, what was the, I, I can't even remember, I'm sorry, the name of the lead prosecutor. Um, um, Chatsow and Bledsoe. Chatsow and Bledsoe, right, those. And so I lay, I kind of lay it, and I mean, I know the buck stops with Mosby, but I just feel like she didn't know enough to know enough. Um, but I don't know. I could be wrong. I'm just a little unsure about what her intentions were. Alex, I'm no. curious to hear what you Yeah, think. you know, I... I published a piece in The Nation within a couple of days of the announcement of the indictments that was deeply skeptical of this whole endeavor, in part because regardless of Mosby's intentions, that system is not designed to A, provide real accountability, or B, make policing any better in the neighborhoods of Baltimore. So that even if she had secured convictions, it wouldn't have changed anything about the way policing is actually conducted in Baltimore, in my opinion. And if we look at cities in the very rare cases when someone is convicted, the narrative immediately becomes, OK, we got the bad apple. The system works. It was the exception and we got rid of them. And now we can go back to doing what we're doing. We got rid of the corrupt cop who broke the law. But the rest of us are doing what we're supposed to be doing. And so we never get in these cases, we never get a real accounting of what happened. We, you know, despite all the attention and the hours of testimony, Justine just shows so clearly there was no real investigation of the evidence. There was no real accountability. There was denial, denial, denial and occasionally throw someone under the bus and say, that's the bad apple and everything is great. So if we have to get past this idea that we're gonna use a criminal legal system that was designed to protect the interests of powerful people to then hold those powerful people accountable. The system is not designed to do that. And we, the, the, the case law around police use of violence is just incredibly permissive and it is extremely difficult to get these convictions even when there is a good faith competent effort to get them and just saying oh, go ahead baby 
sorry, it's so much. It's like, uh, I wanted to just jump on. Um, you know, I, I agree with everything everybody's saying. Um, and I think my book supports everyone's perspectives here. I wanted to jump a little on Rabia's point, because certainly there are a couple questions I can't answer definitively, you know, and whether or not you know, the state's attorney's office purposefully sold out this case is a little complicated, but there is some evidence to clarify some points. You know, the two people that were put, that took leadership of the case, prosecuted it in court with the number two and number three in the state's attorney's office. So Mosby just took office in January and in April, this happened. And her number two and number three said, Okay, we're not going to use any of these very experienced homicide prosecutors. By the way, neither of them had much prosecution experience. One was a civil litigator mostly, the other was mostly a criminal defense attorney. And they said, you know what, we're not going to use all of these extremely experienced homicide prosecutors. We're going to handle it ourselves. And they began immediately after he died to negotiate a settlement. And that is something prosecutors don't usually do unless they're playing politics. And Mosby also expedited the autopsy. So that autopsy was like rushed like crazy. And the medical examiner didn't learn about the witnesses. So what you have is definitely a really entangled combination of incompetence and corruption, like very entangled, because there was also this fever pitch, you know, having people operating at this like speed and panic. Um, yeah, so I think there's that, you know, I think that kind of, um, yeah, that's my answer to whether it was incompetence or corruption. Oh, what I was going to say is I don't think Mosby wanted to lose. Like, I definitely don't think that department wanted to lose everything, you know? Some of the legal charges were just not, they, they charged for assault based on not seatbelting. That doesn't follow in Maryland. It's not a kind of assault. It was sort of a weird unsubstantiated case. But I don't think that they wanted to lose. They would have loved some conviction, maybe criminal, you know, negligence, something, a lesser charge. But I don't think winning was number one on their list. Because I think if it was number one on their list, they knew what direction to go. It would have been about the witnesses and the lieutenant and the force, because they had that information from the beginning. So I think that number one on their list or number two on their list was probably something political. And then winning was further down the list, but I don't think they wanted to lose because it wasn't good for her. Sorry to go on. No, it's fine because the political aspect of this, I think is, is very important um, because you had the then mayor at the time, Stephanie Rawlings Blake, uh, basically asserting from the press conference podium the, what the police narrative of events was before an investigation had been concluded. I don't even think Freddie Gray had been buried. Like, I mean, it, it, was, it was pretty surreal to see um, the mayor of Baltimore City and, you know, a, a, another, you know, different company of other elected officials or, or prominent public figures in the city taking up the police narrative of it and believing the police's account before an investigation had even been completed. So it was obvious, for example, where Mayor Rawlings Blake <laughs> uh, loyalty stood on this. And it did not appear to be not, not only uh, with the family of Freddie Gray, but for the residents of Baltimore City who routinely experience harassment, violence and brutality at the hands of BPD. 
Um, Sierra, do you remember seeing Mayor Rawlings Blake, you know, who had just, I think, uh, secured re-election um, at the time, who had just been, you know, elected outright, because I know we, we know how she came to power. Rawlings Blake was the president of the Baltimore City Council after um, Sheila Dixon, who was the then mayor, had to resign uh, for improper use of gift cards. Um, so anyway, it's 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 a complicated story, but but Mayor Rawlings Blake uh, secured her first election, and then this incident happened um, with the police murdering Freddie Gray, and there she is standing next to the Baltimore Police Commissioner uh, at the time, Anthony Batts, and w without question, without failing, accepting what the police said happened to Freddie Gray. What was your take when you saw that? I'm like, ain't she the one that stole them gift cards? It was up because I'm like, hold up, I ain't ready to forget that she was the one that stole the gift cards. Like, I don't trust you. <laughs> why do they even trust you still? Like, why are you here? I was so confused. Like, I don't know. I just like with that, like I said, that when it comes to politics, sometimes race not the not involved. It's like once you once you once you in there, I don't know. I feel like the black black people get into politics to fake make a change, right? But then once they get in there, it's like they doing the same thing everybody else doing. They doing it all for the money, not for the city or the people that they're supposed to be protecting. So yeah, when I seen her, I just was like, mm. it was it was just too much going on. It was too much going on. So I mean, it was no auspices of neutrality. It was no the, you know, the mayor did not withhold statement until the investigation was completed. I mean, Robbie. I mean that, and not not unusual for Baltimore, I suppose, because you know people who live within Baltimore will often tell others, you know, Baltimore's not real. <laughs> like like but like just th things happen in Baltimore that you that are uh, that are completely unbelievable, right? To 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 people that may live other places, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I, uh, some of the things in the background that I keep thinking about are like, you know, all I really feel like you know, politicians work based on their political interests. Um, and there are so many, there are so many interests behind the scenes that we don't even know, so many connections, so many, you know, things that they have to consider in terms of who they want to keep on their side, who they don't want to make angry, who they need their votes from, where they need to get their money from. Um, that those are the considerations that come, I think, that, that are prioritized for most politicians. And in this instance, um, there's also the question of like, there's always the question of like liability, right? Like, I mean, like subjecting the city and city agencies to lawsuits um, if, and taking a neutral position on something like this um, maybe would be politically un safe for her in that circumstance I, I don't know I mean I just don't I I feel like there I feel like if you were to dig into like kind of the personal connections people have and the personal um and, and so much is motivated not just by personal connections and friendships and alliances that we don't know about but also by um vendettas and I mean you, you know um Sierra mentioned what's happening to Marilyn Mosby now and you know a lot of what's happening I think is thanks to like a lot of personal animosity that is manifesting in different ways. Um, the felt and all these other things. And so it's like, there's, it's hard to understand the things. Mm -hmm. Just, you just know, 
context, really quick, just for context for the audience that's watching that who, who may not be familiar, Marilyn Mosby is no longer the state's uh, uh, attorney um, for Baltimore City. She lost re-election last year, and she is now facing two federal charges in connection to um, somehow misrepresenting her finances on, on a mortgage application, and I think she's also facing a perjury charge. Um, of which she is, will be going to federal court for those very soon, just for people who may be watching and may not be as, as up to speed on what's happening in Baltimore. And, and many people, many people uh, believe that this is a political per, uh, persecution and prosecution. Yeah. And these are Trump up charges. So. Yeah, I, I actually also think the charges against her are pretty bizarre, <laughs> you know, unprecedented. And I know a lot about the prosecutor that was involved in those charges, and he has a track record of, of sort of politically motivated racial prosecutions. At the same time, I recognize a lot of corruption in Mosby's office, you know. Um, that part, the, fe the feds are going to go after her for some minor financial crimes, crimes, uh, they're not going to look at where there's been corruption in her office because everyone depends on that system continuing. You know, I wanted to jump on something Rabia said because a light bulb went off in my head. She mentioned liability. And the original approach before Mosby decided to charge all six officers, which had its own re reasoning behind it, was to sort of limit liability to the van driver. You know, but it was like a rough ride or it happened in the, something, some kind of accident happened in the van, and then the van driver didn't, didn't get him medical care and didn't seatbelt him. And so we have evidence that that was the original plan, was to just target this guy. And this guy, by the way, was uh, you know, a very nonviolent officer, like, like noted over and over again for being like timid and sweet and mild. Um, but he did probably participate in throwing Freddie into the van. But, um, you know, that that made me when when Rabia said that about liability and city liability, I was like, ah, you know, that makes a lot of sense why they would have been thinking about limiting liability, because when you have only one officer with a pretty clean um, internal affairs record as the focus, then you don't have to turn over every case he was involved in. If they really charged, if they really seriously, honestly charged every officer involved in this case, with like good substantial charges, then they would have a real liability issue. Help me, help me with the chronology though, really quick, because I thought that sort of as we said towards the beginning that the settlement reached between the city and the Gray family happened before the officers were even, they definitely before any trials began, but I can't recall if they had already been. Well, as the public knows, it happened in September and the first trial was in December. In reality, the first talks happened the day after Freddie Gray died in April. And when that happened, the family stopped speaking. So we know that they were, because you know, there's a gag order that used to go along with these. This is what Sierra was talking about when she first spoke about buying off the family when they mentioned settlements. There was a gag order involved. So we know from notes from the state's attorney's office and other conversation, other research I've done that they began talking about the settlement immediately. They they discussed the settlement before they looked at footage or interviewed the medics. Because they knew they was Yeah. Sorry? They knew they was wrong. The city. How can y'all not account for this 45 minutes? How how did everybody check on him at every stop, but he ended up dead when he gets to this? Like, it's not adding up. 
clearly y'all knew what was going on. That's why y'all made all these detours and extra stops because y'all didn't want to go directly there because they knew that y'all really just beat them up and took them to the station. So y'all rode around Baltimore City, got somebody else to get in the car to fake confirm y'all's story. Like, it was just too much going on. Like, and I just feel like I'm writing a book, okay? Because it's like the police is a gang. Just like when that guy was trying to snitch on them other officers about that, that stuff and then he got killed in West Baltimore. Every time somebody tried to get justice, as far as police or any political leader, they end up facing charges like Mosby did. Like, this is a dirty game that these people is playing. Like, I, like it, it comes to the fact, just like Tawanda, the one who's fighting for her brother. She's out here every week. She's getting harassed every time she's trying to do like, like it's like it's it's like a gang. Like they're literally the worst gang ever. Like they got all the power, they got all the machinery, they got all the, you know, information and the access to things. Like y'all are greater and y'all use it to your advantage. Like it's not like y'all using all of this technology and access that you have to serve the community on the oath that you took because I thought that's of course they're going to believe the police over the citizens y'all took an oath so people trust y'all supposedly but the whole time we more honest than y'all and we ain't even take no oath so it's a dirty game sometimes people be scared to even speak on this stuff like how uh he was saying in the beginning like this is a sensitive subject you know I know a lot of people that want to talk about it but they scared to talk about, especially if they got records or, you know what I mean? Like the police know who they are or haven't counted them before. Like they have stories too, but they scared. They don't want to get locked up. Just like the guy they put in the van with Freddie Gray. Y'all threatened that man and made him tell y'all story for y'all to make it seem, you know, to make it seem as if, you know, everything was adding up. And I, I, I don't get it. Like I said, for the 45 minutes, that y'all still not accounting for what happened. <laughs> like, what? what is the logical explanation that you can have for that man being in a whole coma when he went to the, like, from Gilmore, from Baker Street to Riggs Avenue, that's like two blocks down the street. Like, how was he dead? Like, I never could understand it. Now, I know they beat people up. Like, when they lock people up, they beat them up. So we did think he would probably be injured, maybe paralyzed, but not dead. Like, come on now. It's crazy. <clears throat> you know, uh, Alex Sierra articulates extremely well, you know, the, the high skepticism and the, and the foundational understanding that people who live in over-police communities get that it's the police against them. It's the elected officials against them. It's the prosecutors against them. It's the entire system against him, you know, I, I, I take a lot of double entendres out of Justine's title, like they killed Freddie Gray. There's a lot of they's there, you know, a lot of they's. Yes, 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 I agree, I agree. Um, get, let, me, let, me get, let me get your take, Alex, about how, what, what Syria is articulating, people living in those communities know that, but really when Stephanie Rawlings Blake and, and Commissioner Batts and, and eventually Kevin Davis and this one and that one take to the podium, 
I mean, they're talking to a broader audience, right? They're talking to the business community of, of the city. They're talking to the white community of the city. They're talking to the white commuters that, that come in and out of the city for their entertainment and for their business, you know, to, to keep some reassurances that, hey, you know, we're, we're keeping this, this black uprising, this black discontent, this black violence, we're keeping that very segregated in, in, in their space where they need to be. Fret not, the rest of the city remains open for business. I mean, is, is that how you see that messaging or how it's received? Absolutely. You know, for, for all its unique quirks, Baltimore is, is not the only city that is organized this way. If we look at what's going on in Washington, D.C., in Atlanta, in Detroit, in Chicago, you know, in Cleveland, we got black mayors, black police chiefs, black city councils who are trying to figure out how to make these cities run. And these cities have experienced a lot of disinvestment, a lot of deindustrialization, a lot of budget cuts. And abandonment by the federal government, in large part because these are cities now of majority non-white people. And the federal government has just written a lot of these cities off. And so this black elite emerges. And they try to figure out both how to keep themselves at the top and how to try to keep these cities afloat. And unfortunately, the, the formula that they've all settled on is to use police to micromanage the, the poorest and most vulnerable folks in, the, in these cities because they are a threat to the vision of economic development that they're trying to sell the people with capital to build office buildings and start businesses. And so even though the people with a lot of money to develop these cities, may not live in the cities, may not vote in the cities, keeping that flow of money, keeping those credit ratings happening, keeping the banks happy, that is job number one. And policing has become an essential tool to keep things from getting out of control. And unfortunately, this, this vision of how to run these cities, it has nothing to offer these communities. No jobs flow to these communities. No new resources flow to these communities. The schools don't get better. The parks don't get better. And the violence continues. And then policing just becomes another source of violence in the community. It doesn't solve the violence. It just adds to the violence. And as you mentioned, the police receive the lion's share, the bulk of funding, public funding in the budgets especially in cities like Baltimore, but really I think this, this is applicable for cities across the country. If you, if you just very do a, a quick cursory look at where the majority of cities have their, have their budgets allotted to, it, it, it goes overwhelmingly to the police, not nearly as much goes to public schools or public health or housing or parks and recs or any of the other things that, that help to make a very thriving healthy community. It, it is the police and, and they are seen as the solution to, to all social ills. And, and oftentimes they end up causing more harm than they than they do solve. And, you know, Justine, you know, there was a couple, lots of lots of pieces of your book that that definitely 
uh, resonate, but I wanted to get back to the way that the police really set the narrative and led everybody by the nose, like led everybody by the nose, led the state's attorney's office by the nose, led the media by the nose, led the public by the nose. And in one of the ways that they were able to do that was to manipulate the video footage that there was um, surrounding uh, the area of Gilmore Homes and uh, I'm not sure if that was Mount Street, but in Baker Streets, right? Mount and Baker. Um, there, the city had invested hundreds of millions of dollars in this city watch surveillance system. And when, when it was needed, <laughs> when, when, when the cameras needed to be called upon uh, that could actually tell the tale and reveal what actually happened to Freddie Gray at the subsequent stops of the Baltimore transport van, the Baltimore police transport van, somehow the camera footage wasn't there. Somehow, oh, the, 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 the footage is, 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 is corrupted or, or it's, it's not coming across very clearly. Uh, well, but this was all foolishness and, and shenanigans. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you know, I want to give a shout out to Amelia McDonald Perry. She was my partner on the Undisclosed podcast series that we did, which was produced by Ravia's team um, back in 2017. It was before I had all the evidence to write the book, but she really spent countless hours pouring through the video evidence the first time, and then we we found some more things for the book. But um, yeah, the they released this tons of CCTV video as if to say, we're completely transparent here. And they flooded the public. Baltimore has a unique approach to this. I don't see this in every city. They flooded the public with details, you know, at 8.54 and two seconds, this call was made by this dispatcher. And it was, it was so, I hate to laugh, but it's not funny, but there, there was nothing there. It was just data and videos and, and noise, but they took out all the good stuff from the videos. They took out all the real evidence and it wasn't hard to figure out because it, the video would freeze and the time would keep running or suddenly the clock would go from 8.49 and two seconds, 8.49 and 11 seconds with like those seconds are gone. Like, it was pretty obvious. Another another part, they just like blurred a whole section on two different cameras, you know. Um, and yeah, there there was the the alleged stop four. You know, there was this the the van took this supposed journey um, was supposedly right in the middle of like twenty four cameras, but they didn't have any footage of it. They said, you know, so it was all um, yeah. So so they. They clearly manipulated the footage and, and actually that was CCTV footage. So they had to be very tricky about how they did it, but it's even easier with body camera footage because the um the system axon like axon, the company that like you know gives police body cameras, like it brags on it. Everyone should go check out its website. It's like dystopia. You know, you can easily redact what really happened or blur things, and it like brags about this. And so, you know, that's a whole issue in terms of police accountability, because people get handed footage, not just media, defense attorneys get handed footage. You know, I, I have a friend who is a lawyer and she was showing me some footage. It's like, well, it got real dark right there. Did you notice? Like, why would the same room suddenly get dark? So, yeah. They learn, they learn from Watergate. It's like the Watergate approach to providing you with the data. The, the tapes are blank. 
Mm. No, that that because because I thought body cams and 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 transparency. <laughs> I thought all this was the solution, right? Like, how can the cops lie if their actions are captured on tape? And it's like, well, they can lie on the tape. <laughs> they can they can do a lot of things to the tape. And Sierra, uh, you you were quoted in the book. I'm not. I can't quote you directly, but I'm a paraphrase here. Like, you know, like you told us earlier, you said the camera didn't catch what happened to Freddie at one of the stops that the that the transport van made. But the same camera caught you rolling a J, rolling a blunt on your front step, and ca- and they can't even talk to you about it. The camera can see the ingredients on a soda bottle when you're drinking it. Okay, I had access to CCTVs and all that in the in the in the um as a nine one one dispatcher. Those cameras are crispy clear. Okay, it's nothing you can miss. They definitely caught the footage. <laughs> they just ain't exposed the footage. The footage is somewhere. I don't know, but. That camera definitely worked. I know for sure that that camera worked. But again, like I said, they didn't want to see that that particular camera because that's the footage that I see with my eyes. And that's why I was never called into court because that could have been the possible thing that really injured Freddie. Because like I said, what I seen was he was already in a paddy wagon. Y'all took him out the paddy wagon. He already screaming. With handcuffs on his wrists, y'all take him out the paddy wagon to put handcuffs on his ankles because y'all claim he in there kicking the, the walls or whatever the case may be. Y'all put the handcuffs on his ankles and throw him head first, stomach down, into the paddy wagon, close the door. Y'all ain't care what position he was in. So, again, that is evidence right there, you know, that could have proved the, the uh, whoever was driving, lieutenant, because I feel like it was his fault because he was the driver, and I feel like it was the 21 Jump Street cops, those cops that was on the bike, called them 21 Jump Street cops. I feel like they was the 21 Jump Street cops' fault because those were the ones handling him when they took him out of the paddy wagon and put him back in the paddy wagon. So... I feel like they didn't want that evidence shown because, yeah, like it, it could have definitely proved some negligence towards the driver or, you know, something. That that video footage there, what I say with my eyes could have definitely proved and probably possibly because I still don't believe that they probably would have got charged if they had that footage, but possibly, you know, so. You know, Rob, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Justine. No, I'm sorry. I should let you host, but Syria um, gave that statement hours after the arrest. And right. I was I was shocked when I had met her already when I got a hold of that. And I had thought she gave her statement weeks later because that's what the notes said. I don't know why the notes had the wrong date on them, except that's a little suspicious. You know why. Yeah, probably. When I heard it, I was like, wow. And she, it wasn't just her. There were like three or four that day, a few more the next day and the next day, all saying the same thing so clearly. You know, she was so clear about she had just seen it. I just seen it. And right after all that happened, that's when all them people came. They came for days and days and days, not just that day. They were coming and coming and coming every day to try to, like, word things. That, I feel like this. 
they plays on on people in those type of communities, right? Because there's a lot of people in those communities who don't really have it all, not really educated, not really paying attention to what's really going on, right? And I think they thought they had one with me because they kept coming every day to reword these same questions. Like, I don't know, it's the same questions. Um, You asked me that yesterday. So you rewording is not making me change nothing. You asked that, I answered it. You asked it again in a different way. I'm still giving you the same answer. You can't swindle me. You can't make me, <laughs> I know what I saw. Like there's nothing that you can make me or say that's going to make me change the truth. This is the truth. This is what actually happened. And I really felt like that's why I never showed up in court because Brandon Ross, who she talking about, is my friend as well. And when he got summons to court, I got summons to court. So he was asking me, like, do you want me to take you to court? I'm like, sure. Court date come. He like, what time do I go to court? I'm like, I thought eight o'clock. <laughs> I never went. I never stepped foot in a courtroom about Freddie Gray. Never. Like, so... But I had eight summons. So I, I was so confused at that point. Once I met Justine and she was putting me down with how the two reporters that was in the whole couple came to see me and try to make it seem like they wasn't in a couple. And try, it was a lot going on. I mean, I went to see Mosby's husband. I done went down the state to turn. I done went to see so many people about this and never ended up at no trials and nothing only with Justine wrote. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> That's why I'm so down for Justine because it's like, get that news out there. Like, don't nobody really care about really getting the real information out there. Like, I didn't even know if I can trust Justine with all that stuff that was going on at the right. But it was like, she proved to let me know time and time on timeless accounts that she was really trying to figure out what really happened. So I was down with that. So if she need me to speak on this, Wherever she go, I'm I'm down with that because I still I still want justice. Like I know the family was paid. I'm not family. I ain't get a dollar. I still want justice. So you can't shut me up. I'm sorry. <clears throat> well, let, let me let me let, let let me let's let us walk down that road where it's what Sierra is talking about because it, it Justine help me fill in, fill in the blanks here because out of the many witnesses that was outside on the street when Freddie Gray was uh, chased and assaulted by police, many, uh, or at least a handful of eyewitnesses say that they witnessed Freddie being tased. They witnessed excessive force used against Freddie Gray. Uh, the Baltimore police denied this the whole way. Uh, they claimed that all the injuries that he sustained was a part of his, his quote, rough ride in the van. Um, and so many people like Sierra were, were never called upon to testify um, as part of the, the state's attorney's prosecution of these police officers. And it was a very sort of specific demographic that was allowed to testify and more specifically uh, some demographics that were not called to testify. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, we had nine witnesses that saw him thrown headfirst and face down into the van at the second stop. His injury, a jump facet, only happens with headfirst force into a wall. So that's one and one makes two as far as I'm concerned, you know. They also, most of those witnesses also saw him stop screaming 
you know, that was very clear in witness account after witness account, even more than those nine. And he had been screaming the whole time from stop one to stop two. He was screaming from the in the van ride from one to two. We could hear it on the radio. So um, they weren't called to testify. The, the state's case was strange. It was um, introduced as a lot of um, administrative employees of the Baltimore Police Department and city, people who testified about how the vans have seatbelts, how they audited a separate person to testify how they had audited the vans and, and proved that the vans have seatbelts, as if this really needed that much proof, you know? Um, somebody to testify about what policies they learned about seatbelting. And even that case, the idea that they had been trained to, to seatbelt, they hinged it on that. But the policies weren't that clear. The training wasn't that clear. They really weren't routinely seatbelting. So it was a very strange case. It was the witnesses in court were largely officers um, or um, administrative employees. It kind of was a, a bloodless case in a way like very anemic, very um, administrative and strange, you know, I think kind of scrambling. Um, and then the defense just ripped it apart. They had, they had no evidence of how Freddie Gray died, so he could have died at any point. He could have died at the end of the rape. They had a, a medical examiner whose autopsy report was filled with, well, maybe, probably, could have, you know, all so, types of people. What maybe, probably could have. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's crazy. But it's also this this idea that people like Sierra, who's who's very clear about what she saw and and and, and what she interpreted, were not called right. And also, conversely, the, people like Sierra were not heard from in the media, right? And <laughs> It is, it is this constant erasure of, of, of Black folks who, who live in low-income areas that are over-policed. Like, it's like, the, it, 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 it adheres to a very negative, stereotypical trope. Like, Black people can't be trusted. You can't listen to them. Like, anything, anything they say, it's a lie. And when you omit eyewitness accounts of people who know what they saw, it, it, it feeds into that, right? And and that that was kind of my takeaway as to, fr from your book as to why certain people were called to testify, some weren't. Some people's eyewitness accounts was featured on local uh, local news stations, and and many others were not. Whereas the police accounting was taken as gospel by the media, by the mayor, <laughs> by 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 a lot of people. Um, and, and Alex and Robbie, let me get, let me get you guys in here because. You know, there, there's definitely a hierarchy of credibility when it comes to eyewitness accounts of police violence, police brutality, police murder. Like, you can't believe these lying people in the neighborhood. They hate police. Of course, they're going to lie and say whatever they can to hurt the police as if as if they, they're not speaking their, their honest lived experience about not only what they saw, but what they deal with on a regular basis. Anybody can can grab that. <laughs> Rabia is muted. Rabia, you're muted. Oh Somebody... yeah, they gotta mute her because I I muted too and couldn't unmute Rabia. <laughs> yeah, I think the host has to do that. Well, let let me just say that you know prosecutors have a narrative, a story that they want to tell in court, 
And so any voice that's not consistent with that story gets silenced. And it's, you know, as Justine shows, the narrative that Mosby created around this was the narrative that came from the police. And community voices were not consistent with that narrative. And so they were excluded. And of course, this happens all the time. And they know there are no real consequences for excluding those voices because they're dealing with people who don't have power and access to the media, that the media don't won't take seriously. The media only takes seriously what elected officials and powerful people have to say. And so whenever we're dealing with an issue of the criminal legal system, right? Certain voices are privileged, certain perspectives are privileged, and others are erased. And that allows that system to just keep chugging right along without being seriously questioned. And of course, that's part of why, you know, uh, police enjoy the level of respect they do. That silencing of an alternative understanding of what's going on. Yeah, um, this is what we call in the wrongful conviction world, um, the problem of uh, bad evidence, because police officers, when they're investigating a case, and oftentimes, you know, when you get end up with a wrongful conviction, it happens because they've got a gut feeling and any evidence that contradicts that gut feeling and evidence here would have been the testimony of these witnesses. They literally, it won't even appear in the case file, they'll disappear it, right? Like, um, and Oftentimes what happens in, in in these cases is like the prosecutors are not investigating. They are handed case files by the criminal investigators, you know, the, the police investigators and everything they take in that is that's their gospel. That's their Bible they're going to use. So if it's missing pertinent evidence, if it's missing pertinent witness statements or or and, and even those statements like you have to take with a grain of salt because the officers are going to write down what they want to write down. There have been so many times I've gone back and spoken to witness and they're like, that's not what I said. Or that's not what I signed or, you know what I mean? And so, but you don't really have a system in which prosecutors are then going to, I don't know in this case whether they had their own, I mean, they did have their own independent investigators, but I don't think there was actually any real investigation that took place out of the state's attorney's office. Um, And again, like it would have just undermined their own prosecution to introduce these witnesses. Like, you know, that, that, that. Um, I mean, certainly the erasure is an issue here, but I think a greater issue was that if these, if their statements would have served their, the state's narrative or the prosecutor's narrative that, you know, we're trying to prove it was a rough ride, um, then they, they might've been called, but, um, that's not, they would have undermined their own case here. I mean, if anything, ironically, I don't know, maybe in some of the, they would have served better as uh, defense witnesses. Right. You know, if if I could just say that, you know, the, the, the practice of police lying in written statements in court is so widespread, even the police have a word for it, right? Test a lie. Right. They believe, they believe they are the only thing keeping civilization afloat. <laughs> and therefore, they can do whatever it takes, whatever they can get away with to get the bad guys, even if they, even if it's the wrong people. Because they think even if I got the wrong person, it still sends a message that you shouldn't do bad things because we'll get you, that we get people and we destroy them. And they, they just feel like they can do anything that they, that they want to try to achieve that. 
and prosecutors basically are the same way. I'm sorry, y'all. My phone died. Hi. Thank you. See, are you with us? Yeah, my phone died, you guys. I'm sorry. No worries. No worries. Listen, we're we're at about um well 10:30 Eastern. I'm sure we're going to be opening up for questions uh really soon from the audience. So audience, be thinking about what you would like to ask. Um, certainly go ahead so i'm so sorry i um i actually need to drop out now I'm, I'm i am on the east coast and it's a little late for me and i just wanted to apologize i didn't realize how i have a six-year-old waiting for me to put him to bed type of situation <laughs> so i don't have child care tonight i'm sorry um but i just wanted to say thank you for having me on the panel and i wish i could stay for q a but unfortunately i can't if that's okay thank you robbie oh, we we appreciate you making any time for us and, we, and, and thank you so much for your insight and for your perspective and for your work um, on, on these issues and, and doing what you can to, to free people, you know? So thank you, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here tonight, but it was a great honor to be able to write the forward to the book and I wanna congratulate Justine again and thank you City Lights Live for, uh, for including me in this conversation. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you. That's Robbie Achari, everybody. Uh, thank you so much, Robbie, for your time. Uh, we still have Sierra, Alex, and Justine, and myself. I'm Kim. So, um, gang, but before we start, turn it over for questions from the audience, you know, Justine, <laughs> um, it, the book touched touched me in a lot of ways because it it was simultaneously like very technical. Like I really appreciated you digging into the into the minutia of of the altered uh, CC street street cameras and into uh, the duration of the different stops that the Baltimore police transport van that had Freddie Gray inside of it made and the distinctions that you that you illuminated regarding what's a switchblade and, and what's not what what the police had initially tried to accuse Freddie of, of possessing which started this horrible um, you know scenario to, to to begin with um what what did you learn what what I, I, well for one what, what what was all of that like for you i know you said amelia your reporting partner um what was was very helpful and instrumental in that way but i, I was reading this and listening to it and i'm like this is years worth of work and we're about eight years away from the murder of of Freddie Gray, um, what what has all of this been like for you to stay on top of this? Because also reading this, I'm like, clearly you had to be on this, like from day, like from the day, from the week, from the immediate, you know, aftermath of when Freddie um, succumbed to his injuries. Like, so what what has this process been like for you? You have lived with the murder of Freddie Gray now for almost a decade. Um, so. <clears throat> I wasn't there at the beginning. I came a year later. That's when we were asked to start looking into it. There was still trials going on. And the mood in Baltimore for the year that we did the podcast and I was investigating it was really intense and antagonistic. You know, Amelia and I were harassed by certain officers. We faced a ton of pushback, but there was also apathy from the media, um, mixed messages from the activist community, mostly support. But, um, the you know that was a very intense time and the apathy from the local media to our findings was frustrating we had a lot of pushback from journalists too 
like shockingly worse than from the cops. Um, and then I had a break, you know, and then I had a break. We were disappointed that we didn't have a bigger impact because we were, we had figured out that he was killed at stop two. I just didn't have as much evidence. And I didn't, and then when the evidence came in for the book, everything came together and time had passed. And on, on the one hand, that meant room for some people that were skeptical at first to say, okay, I'm interested. And there's also been all these huge corruption stories in Baltimore since with the gun trace task force, right? So then it was, you know, okay, well, maybe this is more corrupt than we thought. Um, as far as writing it, like, I don't remember writing it. <laughs> it was just really fun. And I enjoyed every minute of it. I had a wonderful editor. And, you know, I have been sitting with this story for years. And so writing, and, and I had been investigating the Baltimore Police Department, Detective Sean Souter, other stories, the consent decree. I, I've been looking at corruption for a long time. So the book was everything I had to say finally, you know? So I feel extremely fortunate that I even got the chance to write it. I might actually relax for the first time in eight years, like, because <laughs> you're carrying so much information and then you're not like, people regarded me and Amelia skeptically. On top of being outsiders and not having a Baltimore Sun credentials were two women, it's crime reporting, it's very sexist, you know? So yeah, um, a huge relief now that, you know, that we're, my goal was just always, this story I knew was major. And I couldn't believe that we, that we, that having evidence wasn't enough. My articles weren't enough. But now, finally, like, I'm getting somewhere, you know? Area, I, I'm going to pose that same question to you, but obviously there, there's way more weight to it. There's way more gravity to it because Freddie was somebody that you knew personally. You saw him. You know, he, he'd been to your house, you know, and other people in the neighborhood knew him, missed him, know his people, know his, his family. Um, and to know the way that he was taken right there on the street, basically, in, in front of everybody. Um, even eight years later, even with all the corruption cases surrounding Baltimore politics and Baltimore police that Justine just named, uh, you know, with the, the death of Sean Souter, the Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force, you know, Mosby being charged herself. I mean, all of this is it's been a lot like and you've expressed that that the whole it, it was a lot going on you said that numerous times and i and i feel that i feel that so much so tell me i mean eight years on what does it still feel like for you for for freddie to be gone be taken in the way that he was and and what's what's the community like still what's how has sandtown changed if at all since freddie gray's murder it changed a lot i moved like I couldn't deal with it all. Like I just had to get away from it all. I mean, I still have family down there, friends down there, so I still go down there not too often, but it's like a ghost town now. I mean, after the riots, we just burnt everything down, so it wasn't really no stores around. Then they done knocked all the buildings down, so it's not really any it's like ghost town now. I mean, it's still some people that, you know, hang around, but it's definitely not the same. Like, it's definitely not the same. The only thing left of Freddie is a painting on the Dagon building. And um, what y'all were saying 
what y'all was saying earlier before my phone died when y'all was saying like how police get all this funding to um i guess supposedly help the community or the residents of the city and it's like but we're left with nothing you know like even now after the riots all those celebrities they done sent up here jay-z beyonce people flying all helicopters sending food down all this extra stuff they do. it's still nothing that's really like it's still nothing there like it's nothing there they didn't build a center for the kids it's, it's like no it's still like i don't i don't know it's not the same at all though it's not the same at all it feels kind of like dead around there like i don't know it's not even a lot of people that used to be around there in 2015 a lot of people moved like right after everything happened a lot of people moved from like out of gilmore homes and from around that area it was just too much and again everything was burnt down nobody the lady that owned the store that burnt down across the street on Mountain Baker, we asked her what she going to rebuild. She said, no. She said, I don't even want to. Like, it's like, it kind of, like, it already was messed up around there. But it was worse. It, it just kind of made things worse. Like, we, I was really fighting for a change, you know? Like, I know it's not really just automatically changed because we pan up stuff, but... <sighs> I don't even know what to do at this point. Like, I'm going to keep telling my truth, though, and I'm going to keep, you know, putting it out there because I feel like once you stop putting it out there or once you stop talking about it, just like Freddie Gray, once everybody stopped talking about it, like, what happened? Like, nobody really cares anymore. <laughs> like, so... I don't know, man. I just feel like it's sad. I lost a friend for nothing. You know, like, and nobody cares. So it's like, what do I supposed to do other than feel it? So that's what's happening with me. I mean, I'm not saying, like, we was the closest friends ever, you know. But, again, he hung right across the street from where I lived. He was somebody, like, I literally chilled with, you know, smoked whatever we did together, went out, laughed, had fun. Like, he was a human being, like, regardless of what he did, you know, so, or what they're claiming that he did, because he ain't even do nothing, but, yeah, it's sad. Alex, you know, the lasting trauma of, of, of police violence coupled with, you know, disinvestment and, and a, a a cascade of, of other, you know, social ills that politicians claim to want to address, but then they keep pouring money in the exact same directions. Police keep operating in the exact same way. And, and allegedly we're in a period of police reform, I, I, I guess. I don't even really know what that looks like because it, it feels a lot like 94 crime bill era sort of rhetoric coming from not only the media about, you know, the, the crime wave, the spikes in crime, the youth crime, gang crime, uh, but we're getting the same sort of responses from politicians with the um, hyperfunding of police. We're seeing projects like Cop City in Atlanta um, get greenlit and then also be met with a lot of resistance and pushback from the community who fully understands 
that simply putting more police on the streets and further militarizing the police does not address the issues of poverty, does not address the issues of people being unhoused. It doesn't, it doesn't meet people's material needs, and yet this continues to be the solution that is offered up by the powers that be. Where, where do you take where we are right yeah. now? Post Freddie Gray, post George Floyd, um, but still very much in a moment where black and brown people are still being victimized by police repeatedly. You know, the folks, the political leaders who who put all their eggs in the basket of policing to bail them out of all their political failures, when police do terrible, horrible, corrupt, brutal things, the only option they have is to trot out police reform again. But it doesn't work, right? We, we After the killing of Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and Freddie Gray, we were told by Obama and everyone else, don't worry, we're going to fix the policing. We're going to give them implicit bias training and de-escalation training and body cameras. And it didn't work. The officers who killed George Floyd had had implicit bias training and de-escalation training and mindfulness training. They were wearing body cameras. They were operating under all, all these new policy changes. It didn't make any difference. It doesn't work. You mentioned trauma, and trauma is really important here because the trauma comes not just from the abuse of police, but also violence within the community. And no one is addressing that violence. Well, almost no one. A few cities are actually starting to figure this out. I've been working in Newark, New Jersey, where Mayor Ross Baraka there took money out of the police budget and created an Office of Violence Prevention and Trauma Recovery that is empowering communities to address the trauma, to try to break the cycle of violence, because we know that young people who get involved in violence have been the victims of violence, have witnessed violence, and that has never been addressed. And that just perpetuates this cycle, excuse me. So we need to break that cycle. We need to get out of this false choice that's given to communities of police or nothing and start demanding some real alternatives. Now, Baltimore has been flirting with this. They've had some little programs. They've given a few community-based groups some money. And then we hear people talk about, well, a balanced approach. Yes, we need policing to do the hard stuff and a little bit of community. But 99.5% of the money still goes to the police. That's not a balanced approach. Let's have a real balanced approach. Let's make sure that the community-based strategies get the same funding the police get. Then we could talk about a balanced approach. Newark is a long way from that, but they are moving in the right direction. And I think it's a model that Baltimore and other cities should be looking at closely. Okay, okay we're looking at uh, 1047 on the East Coast. And I guess that is 747 on the West Coast. My math is not always that great when calculating <laughs> Eastern time to Pacific Standard Time, but I definitely wanna thank Alex Vitale and Sierra Warren and Rabia Shadri, of course, Justine Barron, um, for a piece of work that I think is so important 
Um, it's deep, but it is worth it. Like it is worth. See, Justine, I had to download the audio book and it was like seven hours and I was transfixed the whole time listening to this narration of, of your book. And I appreciate that. So thank you so much to, to City Lights Bookstore and everyone that's watching. I want to bring Peter in. If we have any questions from the audience that we can feel to um, our, our esteemed panelists and uh, to, to close out tonight's discussion, and, Indeed, uh, we do. So, uh, first question comes from Michelle, asking, "Why do you think the SAO preferred a version of six cops being homicidally negligent rather than two or three cops purposely killing him?" Uh, yeah, it's the money question. You know, it's a challenging question, and I think it has a lot to do with um, what was expeditious and what. A story. I think you were dealing with people who were comfortable with a story being more important than the facts. So they really hadn't explored the facts, and this story kind of very quickly came together. The police were initially targeting the van driver. We have a lot of evidence of that. They were specifically making it a case against the van driver. So the police were driving this narrative, the investigators, and the state's attorney jumped on board. Um, in terms of charging six, there, you know, it looked like it was originally going to be a case against the driver, um, Officer Porter, who kind of was at one of the stops and checked on Freddie Gray, and maybe the lieutenant for being a supervisor. And that it looked like the case was going to be more limited from the state's attorney's notes. Um, why they decided to charge all six, I'm not sure. Certainly politically. Um, they were also noting like the race. I've heard some people theorize that it had to do with like getting three and three. <laughs> like if you had three white cops and three black cops, it wasn't a racial thing or that you were covering all the bases. Um, I, honestly, I don't have 100% of the answers. I think I hesitate to like say things, whereas in the book, I show a lot that could help you kind of figure out why why this probably happened, if that makes sense. And then we have a, a question. Uh, actually, it's a statement and a question from Anne. I was a foreperson of the jury in William Porter's trial. Freddie Gray's character was not an essential issue in our deliberations. How do you think the media representation of Freddie Gray affected the outcome of the jury trial and bench trial? I, I don't think so. I think that this came up before somebody on the panel or maybe Kim had mentioned how there's a smearing of victims that happens and how that can affect juries. I don't know that it was necessarily a part of this case because Freddie Gray wasn't really presented in the trials as a person at all, really, probably to the state's failure. But um, yeah, so I don't think that that played a role. Yeah. Um, actually, I'd like to make a comment. You know, it, I'm reminded the whole time as, as you're all talking of the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who writes about the carceral state. And she wrote this book called The Golden Gulag, which essentially kind of frames uh, prisons as being, you know, really part of this vast uh, industrial complex that is, you know, very dependent on the police. They're dependent on it. And it's a money making apparatus. So why would anyone want to really do away with it and change anything if this thing is also now uh, we've got a new book coming out next season, which is actually connecting the carceral states, the military as well. So, um, you know, there's a lot of threads tying a lot of different institutions into each other. 
Uh, it would appear. You know, if I, if I could, you know, uh, Ruth's book, incredibly important in showing the ways in which the prison boom benefited not people running private prisons or some corporation, you know, with prison labor, but the entire California economy from top to bottom. Landowners, banks, bond companies, financiers. And that's the way we have to think about this. This is not about the gravy that falls off the plate in the form of some prison guard and police salaries. This is about the fundamental structure of the economy that relies on policing and prisons to put a lid on the fundamental injustices of those economic relationships. And, and Ruth is super clear about that, that we, we haven't been thinking big enough about the beneficiaries of this system. It's, it's enslaving. Like, who didn't benefit from slavery? Everybody benefited from slavery except for the slaves, right? Except for the enslaved people. Every, the, the banks benefited, landowners, um, you know, the, the, the shipping companies. Like, everybody got a cut off enslaved labor. And, and we are looking at the 20th, 21st century versions of exactly that. If you keep people incarcerated, just look how much money is generated from even calling, you know, incarcerated people calling their families. Like, look how many people get a cut off of that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so insidious and, and gross. And, and it's part of the bad, horrific part of the American exceptionalism that I wish more people would, would wake up to. You know, there's no other country in the world that incarcerates as many people as the United States does. And there's nothing exceptional about that except exceptionally terrible. <laughs> I do want to thank you all uh, for this very enlightening, very engrossing discussion. And Kim Brown, thank you for doing the honors. Uh, just penultimate post. Uh a really thanks to Rabia, who's, of course, left us, but Alex Vitale and, and Syria Warren, uh, thank you so much for making your presence here tonight, uh, really such an important part of the whole program. And, and of course, Justine Barron, congratulations on this really important book. I also want to thank our friend Sherry Hickman at Simon & Schuster. Today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, a publishing program and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So thank you, everyone. Please take care. Please stay safe. Hope to see you all again very soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.